Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about sex and menstruation. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, sneezing, menstruation, and erogenous zones, but not all at the same time. Thanks for joining me during the coronavirus pandemic. It's such a weird time in the world, and I don't know about you, but I'm definitely having challenges with concentration. So in that spirit, something a little different this week. Instead of my usual deep dive into a single subject, this episode will focus on three separate questions that don't require a whole show to answer, but are still topics I want to investigate. First, I'm going to talk about the rumor I first heard as a teenager that a sneeze is one-tenth of an orgasm. While I know this isn't actually true, I still wanted to look at the links between sneezing and orgasm. I also got way more interested in sneezing than I ever thought I would, and I'll share my new sneezing knowledge. I also explored research on erogenous zones to find out what areas are erogenous for people and if we can develop new erogenous zones over time. Finally, I will share my frustration about a menstrual cycle fact that I found out was not as set in stone as I was taught. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... I think that episode 11, To Pee or Not to Pee, garnered the most reaction I have had to a Do We Know Things episode. Most of the comments I received have been around the shock that peeing after sex is not required, since so many people with vaginas have been told over and over that it is necessary to prevent urinary tract infections, also known as UTIs. Here's one message I received. It says, Hi, Dr. Hamilton. Love the podcast. I'm learning so much. Thank you. Uh, As someone who's suffered from chronic UTIs for a period in my 20s, this is something I've thought about a lot. Getting a UTI is torture, but the fear of getting one can be just as bad. As I was listening, I was really struck by your quote from Jen Gunther and how we place all the responsibility for avoiding UTIs on the person getting them. In her quote, the woman. I'm really interested to know if there are any studies on whether UTIs have anything to do with the sexual partner. For example, if we're talking about heteronormative sexual intercourse, is there a correlation between men washing their hands or not and UTI occurrences? We're supposed to be careful about bacteria and germs in the world, but we don't really get taught about how to deal with that sexually. We wash the fruits and vegetables we eat, but what about having sex with someone who doesn't wash their hands after they poop? This is a really good point, and I realized in the to pee or not to pee episode, I didn't make it clear that the bacteria that cause UTIs can come from anyone. And you're right that there's not a lot of talk about washing penises or washing hands after pooping and those links with UTIs. And there's actually no studies on this. Most of the studies just focus on correlational links between penis and vagina sex and UTIs. So yes, this is a very important point. Partners who are touching vulvas and urethras and vaginas should make sure to wash their hands and wash their penises and in general practice good hygiene. And especially in this day and age where all we talk about is washing our hands and avoiding contact with germs, I think this is an important time to reiterate that in terms of sexual contact. 
If you are a person who would like to touch a vulva or vagina <laughs> or have your hands anywhere around someone's urethra, please wash them uh, and also wash your dick. You're responsible for making sure your junk is clean. Make sure you wipe properly after you take a poop and just be more sanitary so that you're not spreading bacteria that will get up your partner's urethra and cause agonizingly torturous UTIs. So thank you so much for that comment. And I really want to emphasize that bacteria causing UTIs is everybody's problem. Another comment that came up in discussion was from my friend, Dr. Shelley Collette, who's been on the podcast before. Shelley is a professor in religious studies, and she pointed out to me the importance of the post-sex pee ritual for some. I actually invited Shelley to elaborate a bit today on ritual and peeing after sex. Welcome, Shelley. Hi, Lisa Dawn. Thank you for having me again. Thank you for joining. I also want to add that in New Brunswick, we are now allowed two household bubbles. Uh, and so Shelley is part of my bubble and is therefore allowed in my house. Yeah, we're, we're bubble buds. So tell me, what should we think about with rituals and peeing after sex? Well, when I listened to your episode, I was actually um, teaching a, a course on ritual. And so I was everything in my world at this time is framed through uh, the theory of ritual and ritual studies. So you're teaching a class on ritual, and I know you, you talk a lot about ritual to me, but what do, broadly, what do we need to know about ritual? Why do we do rituals? Right. So we perform rituals, uh, some rituals we perform collectively, like as a community, and we perform those for a lot of different reasons. Um, sometimes some rituals we perform to mark transitions. Uh, other rituals we perform to build and sustain community. Uh, some rituals are descriptive of existing social norms, um, and some are prescriptive, right? So they're prescribing new ways of existing in a world, and those are usually in response to a threat. Um, but the thing with ritual is that we often perform large and small rituals to give us a sense of control mm. over um, circumstances that we that are unpredictable. They give us a sense of, of security in an unpredictable world, right? So, I mean, I can think of an example right now, mm -hmm. and that would be our hand-washing norms, mm -hmm. right? It's always been a, a wash-your-hands culture for sure, but now it's become this, uh, this ritual that we ideally all, abide mm. <laughs> by, um, that is a response to a threat. And I think this happens on a community level, mm -hmm. right, with these grand rituals, uh, but also on an individual um, micro level, mm -hmm. where we will create little rituals that make us feel safe. And um, it occurred to me while listening to your episode that perhaps peeing was one of those things, Right in this uncontrollable world where anything can happen after sex, you could get a UTI, you could get pregnant, anything can happen. Mm -hmm. But here, I have some control. Right, I can pee. Right, right, and then I'm safe. Yeah, that mm. totally makes sense to me. And one of the things I was thinking of too is if people are like enjoy that ritual of post-sex pee, mm. <laughs> that there's no reason why you don't have to or you need to stop doing that. That can be part of your ritual. Uh, and so I certainly didn't want to shame people for engaging in that type of a ritual. Uh, but I also wanted to give permission to people who are doing it because they think they have to <laughs> and perhaps don't enjoy jumping out of bed to pee, uh, give them permission to not do it if they don't want to. Right, for sure. I mean, like if your bladder is full, <laughs> definitely pee. You should do that. Yes. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> or if it gives you a sense of peace of mind, mm-hmm. yes. right? Yeah. Then that is equally as valuable and valid. Great. Thank you so much. Actually, do you want to stick around and help me with the rest of the episode? Do I? <laughs> Okay, so I've given Shelly my questions that I'm going to address today, and she is going to ask them as though she is me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Shelly, but what? actually Lisa Dunn. <laughs> what is my first question? <laughs> is sneezing actually one-tenth of an orgasm? Okay, so did you hear this growing up at all? Yes. (laughs) I distinctly remember, because I fancied myself a sexpert, I distinctly remember being 14 years old and on the bus, like a city bus, going home after school and thinking I was very knowledgeable and being like, when someone sneezed, being like, did you know that that's one-tenth of an orgasm? (laughs) So I spread this information. Um, and I thought patient zero, Lisa Dawn. Indeed. Uh, I definitely wasn't patient zero because I definitely heard it from somewhere. And I know now, like, probably that's not true, but I was kind of curious, like, where did that come from? Why do people think that? Uh, so I decided to look into it for today's episode. I also thought it's appropriate in this time where we're so aware of droplets exiting from our mouths. <laughs> uh, it seems like an appropriate time to talk about sneezing. So, speaking of orgasms and sneezing, I think you should tell everyone about the achu syndrome. Oh, yes. So, because my brain has been mush since the beginning of, well, always, but with the pandemic, I've had a hard time concentrating, and especially this week, I could not concentrate. So, I kept going on weird wormholes, and now I know more about sneezing than I ever thought I needed to know. (laughs) So, some people, when they look at light, it makes them sneeze. It makes me sneeze. I did not know that this was a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, I thought it was just like, yeah, a weird thing that people just believe. Like, if you look at light, you will sneeze. But it turns out, I found in my research, that there's such a thing as the photic sneeze reflex. And not everybody has this. Did you know that? I did not. I assumed that everyone was exactly like me. (laughs) I mean, it's a reasonable assumption. So hilariously, the photic sneeze reflex is what happens for some people when they look at a bright light, either uh, uh, the sun or a lamp or something. Um, And it's called the ACHU syndrome, if you have this, Um, which stands for autosomal dominant compelling helial ophthalmic outburst, which the acronym stands for ACHU. So I had never heard of ACHU syndrome. And I honestly didn't believe that looking at lights could make you sneeze. And that's because... I guess I assumed everybody was like me, and I don't sneeze when I look at lights. I have the a-choos. You do! (laughs) A-choo-choo-choose-it. Okay, so I went down this, like, pretty intense sneezing wormhole, um, and... Not me personally sneezing, but researching sneezing and trying to figure out what the links are between sneezing and orgasm, and... They do share some similarities. So your nasal passages are innervated with sensory nerves that detect stimuli, and it's a reflex. So you, your nose detects that there's something bad in there or wrong going on, and it reflex triggers, you sneeze. Um, orgasm components of it are reflex, or arousal is reflex, 
Orgasm, it's complicated about whether or not it's a reflex, uh, but both your genitals and your nasal cavities are erectile tissue. What? Yeah, you think about it. Like if you're stuffed up, your like nose gets engorged. My my no- my <laughs> nose is like a penis. Yes. Well, this is news. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> that is unbelievable to me. I am astonished that my nose is basically a little smelling penis. Basically, yes. Uh, this is a science fact. Uh, <laughs> and also, yeah, both your clitoris for or your penis is innervated with sensory nerves that will send signals to your spinal cord to then trigger an orgasm. Similarly, uh, your nose is innervated with sensory nerves that will send a, a signal to your brainstem to trigger a sneeze. I just can't stop thinking about my nose as a dick. <laughs> I'm really stuck on that one point. That's very phallocentric of you, Shelley. <laughs> it could also be a clitoris. Both sneezing and orgasms involve some involuntary components of the autonomic nervous system, and they trigger sympathetic nervous system responses like a brief increase in heart rate, blood pressure. But in general, the components of the body that are involved are different. So it's not using the same muscles. It's not the same nerves. So even though the mechanisms are similar, the actual reactions are not. So in general, while there are potentially some similarities between orgasms and sneezes, they're distinctly different things. Um, And so I don't think there's actually any evidence at all that an orgasm is like, or sorry, that a sneeze is some percentage of an orgasm. That is my scientific analysis of the basically non-existing research on this topic. Because why would someone research something that children spread rumors about? (laughs) Well, I mean, they both are a release. Mm-hmm. Orgasms yeah. and sneezes are both That's a release. True. We mm-hmm. feel relief afterwards. Mm-hmm. And um, they're both called le petit mort. Da, da, da. Da, da, da. Is that true? En français, the sneeze is also petit mort? I don't know if it's en français. It's, I mean, it's, of course, en français, literally, because <laughs> those are actual French yeah. words. I don't know if it's like a French tradition. Like I've never heard a sneeze called... That. Le petit mort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Le petit mort. Achoo. Achoo. <laughs> Editor's note. I looked this up after we talked about it because I really wanted to know the answer. And according to the Oxford English Dictionary, which tracks usage of phrases and words in the English language, uh, le petit mort had not, has not been used to refer to a sneeze, at least in written English. Um but the definition is the brief loss or weakening of consciousness. So a sneeze could be like that, right? You're kind of losing control in that moment. Also, on the internet, there is evidence that people use le petit mot to refer to sneezes as well. So clearly, this is something that some people use, um, just not something that I have ever heard of. So another thing that emerged in my research is that there is a link between sex and sneezing Again, for some people. So apparently, for some people, thinking about sex makes them sneeze. And this has been documented a few times in the research literature. Um, But if you Google it, like I went on Reddit, and I looked in the sex subreddit and searched for sneeze, and a whole bunch of questions came up 
basically saying, like, when I think about sex, I sneeze. Is it normal to sneeze when I masturbate? Those sorts of things. I remembered that I had looked into this before um, because Jeremy has this phenomenon happen to him. Yes. So I have the uh, curious feature that uh, sometimes when I get aroused, um, I start sneezing uncontrollably. (laughs) It's like usually at least three times can be like anywhere between three to uncontrollable. (laughs) But it only happens in certain situations, right? Yeah, yeah. It tends to be uh, in solo mode. (laughs) Solo mode, especially like, yeah, like right before bedtime. So when you're like relaxed mm-hmm. and chilling, and you know, little solo time, and yeah, I can get into uncontrollable. Like once I start thinking about sex, then it can lead to kind of an uncontrollable sneezing fit. But this generally doesn't happen like if you're having sex. No, with somebody no, else. No, Quite I find rarely. that so interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and I looked into this a while ago because he told me about this phenomenon, and there is some link between sneezing and sort of that relaxation, that parasympathetic nervous system activation. And sneezing, and it's there's not a lot of research on this, and the details are kind of confusing, but this is a thing that happens for some people. And so I would love to hear from other people who this has happened to. Like, I feel like we need to do an actual proper study on this, or somebody needs to do an actual proper study on this. That is something I wanted to mention, because you you spoke earlier, you guys, about uh, the Achu uh, thing, where people sneeze at the sun. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I never did that until I saw my friend one morning rush to the windowsill to, to get the morning sun in his face so he could have like a monster sneeze. And then after that, I could do it. So I think I'm highly open to suggestion so when it comes to nasal things. you trained yourself to yeah. sneeze in response to the sun. I didn't train myself. It's just somebody planted that in my brain and then I could do it afterwards. And that gets back to the whole sneeze thing. Um, was I suspect that got planted in my brain because of a Steve Martin movie called The Lonely Guy, where um, I can't remember it too well, but I think he dates a woman who who um, sneezes during sex, or oh no, who, go, who comes when she sneezes, um, whenever someone sneezes or when she sneezes. I can't remember it exactly, but but I remember seeing that like when I was thirteen, and that kind of I think that planted a bug in my brain that that is a thing that can happen. That you linked sneezing with sex. Yes. I wonder, ooh, if we do do a study on this, we should ask that question. Did you see the Steve Martin movie? What's it called again? (laughs) The Lonely Guy. Okay, The Lonely Guy. We'll see if only people who have seen The Lonely Guy are sex sneezers. Mm -hmm. But I remember, I'm pretty sure at the time, like, the the sneezing is the same as orgasm. Like, that that kind of urban myth was Mm -hmm. already floating around. So I had, that was like a dual thing that happened in my brain that, Mm -hmm. that you're already thinking that, you're already associating orgasm with sneezing. And then this woman on on the movie was just like, yeah, I can only come with sneezing or something like that. Mm. And that put it together in my head. And I think that may have started an association there. Intriguing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your sneezing and sex story with us. <laughs> thank you. Can I posit a hypothesis about this uh, sneezing during arousal sure. thing? I wonder if it has something to do with pupil dilation. Because our pupils dilate when we're in a state of arousal, if we're attracted to someone, don't they? Yes. And people sneeze when they look at the sun or the, well, I mean, some people, mm. people like me. Right. And not like me. Uh, sneeze when they look at the sun or a bright light. And so maybe it has something to do with light in the brain. That is very possible. I looked 
at or in the Achu syndrome, the belief is that there's a kind of cross-linking between the pupil dilation reflex arc and the sneezing reflex arc. And so it could be, yeah, something in that domain where things are overlapping. Or or Steve Martin. Or I mean, Steve Martin. One or the other. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe both. <laughs> Steve Martin is the light. That's the lesson here. <laughs> So speaking of the relationship between sneezing and noses and arousal, um, I have a question here that you asked yourself, (laughs) which is that, uh, are there specific areas that are erogenous zones or can any part of the body be erogenous for some folks? Right. This was a question from that we talked about actually in episode two that you were last on. I remember that episode well. Yes. Um, And that was asked by someone who attended my... uh, podcast launch party one of your fans one of my fans and so since then i've looked into this a little bit for most people the genitals and areas adjacent to the genitals are erogenous zones and there are some common areas like nipples for example that are erogenous to many but then not at all for some one study had people do a map of their erogenous zones and then they put a lot of people's maps together and found that during partnered sex, most parts of the body were erogenous zones for at least some people. But obviously there are areas like the genitals that were highly concentrated for erogenous reactions. But in terms of having areas that are highly erogenous for you that are generally not erogenous for others, it does seem to happen. For some people, there are links formed between these highly specific areas and their arousal, but I think in general, it's fairly rare. How are these links established? The problem with things like this, and I think of this in terms of other sexual interests like fetishes, it's really hard to know like how these connections begin. Um, and some one of the assumptions is there is some just conditioning like at a certain part of your life this part of your body was stimulated in in a way that just worked for you and you got aroused and now that is the part of your body that works for you to get aroused so an example that i'm thinking of is like feet so some people really like having their toes sucked for example uh, whereas other people would not enjoy that at all like it wouldn't be arousing for them but things like necks. So for some people, like having someone breathe on your neck or kiss your neck is very erotic, but for other people, it might not be. And so I think there's social influences. So culturally, in your culture, what is seen as erotic or erogenous, um, but also just individual randomness. So it could be socialized, like something you experienced in your life, or it could just be some cross-wiring in parts of your brain. So there's a map of our body in the sensory part of our brain. And so if there's overlap between areas, you could get um, like cross-wiring, essentially. This almost makes me want to um, do experiments on my own self and try and train myself to find strange, innocuous places on my body erogenous. Yeah, I don't know if it would work that way, like if you intentionally set out to do it. But an experiment you could do, yeah, is pair arousal with a specific stimulation again and again and again and just see then if you can. Yeah. I also wonder, too, about developmental factors. So there's some evidence that these things tend to happen in development and once you you are developed, (laughs) uh, so past puberty, essentially, um, then you can't change it that easily. But 
again, there's such little research on these topics because sex in general is under-researched. And it's also just hard to research because you can't track a human every step of the way of their entire life and know what caused this to happen. Um, so this is a very long-winded answer to the question, <laughs> can other parts of your body have ero be erogenous that are not uh, typical erogenous zones? And I would say the answer is yes. That sounds like fun. <laughs> sounds like something Steve Martin should make a movie about. So, Lisa Dawn, you had a question for yourself about your period. I did. And that question was, uh, does your period always come 14 days after ovulation? Great question, me. So this one came out of my experience both as a sex educator and also as a hormone researcher, where I was told again and again that after ovulation, which happens in the middle of the menstrual cycle, that it is always exactly 14 days until the period comes. So just to recap how the menstrual cycle works, on average, uh, menstrual cycles vary from like 26 to 32 days, um, with the average being around 28 days. And so how this works is day one is the first day of your period. You bleed for however many days. <laughs> um, and that period at the beginning when you're menstruating and then after when you're menstruating is called the follicular phase because this is when the follicles in your ovaries are preparing the next egg to be released. Then in the middle of the month, usually day 14, if you have a 28-day cycle, an egg is released that can be fertilized. And so that is your ovulation. So you release an egg, potentially it can be fertilized. And then after that egg is released, you go into what's called the luteal phase. And this is where your body is essentially preparing for pregnancy. So that egg has been released. It's viable and waiting for some sperm. <laughs> and then if that egg is not fertilized and does not implant into the wall of your uterus, also known as becoming pregnant, then you menstruate and you start the cycle again. Anyway, so for some people, their menstrual cycles are quite regular and some people it varies. And one of the things that we know is that stress, for example, can change the length of your menstrual cycle, usually making it longer. And I remember learning in multiple places from multiple people that stress can only affect that first phase. So the follicular phase could be made longer, but that once ovulation had happened, it was always 14 days until your period would start. And so this assumption is used a lot in research too, trying to guesstimate when people's periods are happening or what phase of their menstrual cycle they're in, um, which really can't be done since people's menstrual cycles vary from month to month. But I started looking into this idea that after you ovulate, it's always 14 days until your period when I started about three or four years ago tracking my temperature. So so your temperature also changes through your menstrual cycle. So usually during the, the follicular phase, you have a pretty stable temperature. And right around ovulation, your temperature will spike or start to go up. And then it stays up. Once you're in the luteal phase, it will be higher. So my average temperature during my follicular phase is usually around like 36.1 degrees. Um, and then 
after ovulation, I go up to 36.35 degrees. Uh, And so I'm usually above 36.3 is my post-ovulation window. And when I first started doing this, this app was telling me that I was ovulating and then I was having my period 10 days later. And I was like, that's impossible. Clearly, I'm doing something wrong. Clearly, there's something wrong with this app. This is ridiculous. So then I ordered LH tests. And LH tests are um, ovulation detectors. So there's a hormone called luteinizing hormone that spikes right before you ovulate. And so I thought, well, if I get LH tests, then I will know for sure that ovulation is happening or not. And then I can't, I won't rely on temperature, which is clearly wrong. So then I started doing LH tests and it confirmed, in fact, that temperature was right and this app was right and that I was ovulating 10 days before getting my period. And I was like, that's impossible. I've been told my whole life that it has to be two weeks. Um, but for some reason, even at then, I didn't look into it. I just kind of was like, "This something is wrong here. This is weird. Um, and then... I would say like two years into this experiment, I or in, into this study of myself, I started seeing a naturopath. And when I told her that, right away, she was just like, oh, yeah, you just have a short luteal phase. Uh, that means that you have low progesterone. And she knew exactly what caused it. And But yeah, I had no idea. And I had been taught again and again, especially in my hormone research education. Like it was just again and again, like this is what the menstrual cycle is. This is what the menstrual cycle is. But now I know that that's not true. And while for most people it is roughly 14 days, there's definitely some variability there. And knowing now that if you have a short luteal phase, that means something like you have low progesterone um, or that potentially you're going to have problems getting pregnant or whatever. Like, I'm shocked that that information wasn't shared. And I'm like an expert in this area. And it sounds like something that your naturopath was pretty used to hearing. It sounds like it was fairly common for them. Yeah. And I guess I had never talked to my other regular doctors about it. I just never thought to bring it up. Um, and yeah, but then finding out that, oh yeah, this is a thing that happens all the time and here's what it means. And I feel like people should be more informed about their bodies and we shouldn't be told like everyone is this when that's not true. You know, and it sounds a lot like the uh, pee after sex myth. Mm -hmm. It's something that is perpetuated to maybe feel like some sort of control over wild women's body parts. (laughs) That's a very good point. Or just sort of like, oh, women aren't as important to study. (laughs) For example, female lab rats and other animals were often not used in research because it was thought that their estrus cycles were too messy and would make the data too messy. And so drugs and things were only tested on male animals. But it's like, if things like huge spikes of estrogen are going to affect how this drug works, we need to know that information. And so not studying female animals because they're messy and messy unpredictable cycles where their hormones fluctuate at various times of, well, in rats, it's like five days. Uh, but years ago, I read something about trees that uh, was quite similar, that a lot of municipalities won't plant Uh, female trees because they're so messy and unpredictable. And so we end up with a bunch of pollen, which is basically like tree semen, apparently. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So female trees usually bear fruit. And so that's, yeah, harder to deal with, whereas male trees produce the pollen. And And there's nowhere for the pollen to go except up inside our noses, which make us sneeze. Everything comes full cycle. Oh, 
my God. Steve Martin needs to make a movie about this. Totally. So the conclusion of this section and the answer to this question, um, aside from that Steve Martin needs to make a movie about it, is that your menstrual cycle can vary um, and your ovulation and your menstruation aren't necessarily always 14 days apart. That's also important to know for people who are trying to get pregnant, for people who are trying to not get pregnant. Um, knowing when ovulation happens in your cycle is really important and having this idea that it always happens 14 days before your period when that's not always true, can be risky. Um, so I want to spread that knowledge to others. Also, if you're interested in tracking your own ovulation or your menstrual cycle and you're not taking any sort of hormonal contraception, you can just get a thermometer and you have to take your temperature first thing every morning before you move. Like you just wake up and you shove the thermometer in your mouth and you have to take your temperature right away um, and then you can track it. I use an app called Natural Cycles and they actually ask permission to use data in research and they publish some studies. And so you don't have to give them your data for research, but that's an app I use. You do have to pay for it. Um, but there are other ways to track your temperature just by yourself or through other apps that are free. And it was really enlightening to me to learn more about how my body worked and understand the different phases that my body went through throughout the month. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of the episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. Thanks to Dr. Shelley Collette for being here on today's episode. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. Do We Know Things.